You are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. And uh, as I mentioned before, we now have the pleasure of speaking with Judith Brett, who is Emeritus Professor at La Trobe University in Politics. And she is the author of a new book called The Enigmatic Mr. Deacon, which is out through Text Publishing. And Judith also speaks tonight at the Wheeler Centre uh, discussing this book. And uh, and the topic is, well, the title is very revealing as to what Judith will be discussing. It's called Alfred Deacon and the Art of Minority Government, which it certainly is an art. And that will be tonight at 6.15pm uh, and bookings are essential, but the tickets are free. So check that out at wheelercentre.com and I'll remind you at the end of this interview. Um, but uh, let's get straight to it. Hi, Judith, and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's wonderful to have you in. Um, and this book, reading it is an, a real delight because you get to know a figure, a public figure that uh, many may not even be familiar with, but even those such as myself who studied them um, at university, you know, I am familiar with Alfred Deakin, but not the man, like the person and who he was and then the, his whole political life and other life um, that he lived as well. And when I was reading, um, I guess, your intention for the book, that was quite revealing to me because you spoke about how, or you wrote about how, um, you know, there were many others who have touched on Deacon, who've written biographies about him. Um, but this is quite unique uh, in the fact that you say, uh, the book is a life, but not a life of times, life and times. Its starting questions are what events meant to Deacon rather than what he contributed to events. And I think that's really um, a great kind of starting point or I guess perspective of where you're coming from is that you're coming, you're delving in from Deacon's mind and utilising an immense uh, number of primary sources from the man himself. So first of all, um, what made you seek out uh Alfred Deakin as a subject for a biography and why did you take this particular approach? Okay, well, there was a biography written of him by John Lenoz about 60 years ago that I'd read and it's a, it, it was very much what I had in mind when I said Not a Life and Times because he goes on, sometimes there are pages and pages in which Deakin doesn't appear and it was a book that I thought, could I give this to a postgraduate to read to get a sense of who Deacon was or could someone who had a, an interest in public history, in, in history, read it and and grasp him? And I felt there wasn't a, a biography for the contemporary reader. And I decided in approaching it that what I wanted to do was have Deacon have basically follow Deacon's life from inside of him so that always in every scene that I was creating, Deacon was present um, rather than putting a lot of effort into the background. Now, obviously, you know, this, all these things happened over 100 years ago, so you do have to put a lot of historical context in. But my aim was to, to see things through Deacon's eyes and because Deacon wrote quite a lot about the events he was involved in, where possible to use Deacon's words to describe what he was thinking or what he thought he was doing. Indeed, and we're looking at uh, colonial Australia in the 1800s, and this is before Federation, a lot of the book, or at least the early life of Alfred right. Deacon. And that's probably the life that people don't really know about uh, that's far less uh, understood, 
until now, I think, because this is very illuminating in terms of looking at his personal papers and his own um, individual writings, not just his public uh, writings for newspapers, but really, you know, who he was personally. And let's just go to the man himself and who he was and his character, because that's one of the most intriguing aspects throughout the whole book is who is Alfred Deakin? He's a bit of a contradictory character in a way. Um, and you talk about how he was very charismatic. He was a great orator. Um, you know, he was steadfast to his ideals and yet he was great at negotiating uh, politically between others, uh, other individuals and power players. So, I mean, from your perspective, when you were delving into his own papers, what were some of the most interesting things that struck you about who he was as a person? Well, I think two things. One is um, he's very gifted. He He's very intelligent. He's got a phenomenal memory. And when he gets into politics at the very early age of 22, mind you, you know, he's a bit of a political wunderkind, he finds he's got this great gift for oratory and he's a bit like an actor. He's got a sort of performative self that he can draw on and he can extemporise a political speech for an hour uh, and he can really work the crowd. So in that sense, he's a performer. So he's got a, a great range of political skills. But secondly... The other thing that I found intriguing about him is that he has a sense of destiny. Um, Now, it's not a sense of destiny like we sometimes hear about our people who become prime ministers like Bob Hawke, where their mothers say to them, you know, adoring mothers, you'll be prime minister one day, or they say that to themselves. It's more he, he, he knows he's special and he wants to do something with his life, but he's not actually terribly sure what it is he should be. He thinks maybe he could be an actor, maybe he could be a great poet, Maybe he could be a religious reformer. Um, maybe he doesn't necessarily think about going into politics. Somebody, David Syme, the editor of The Age, gets him in there. But he goes along. It, this is he's um, in the late 1870s when he's a young man trying to work out where his destiny lies. He goes to seances. He goes to a phrenologist. He uh, and he believes that there's some prophecies that are made in these seances. He's quite involved in the spiritualist movement at this stage in his late teens and early 20s. And there's some prophecies made which make him believe that his destiny is to be a great liberal reformer. So he identifies himself with the cause of liberalism by which he understands the sort of progressive energy of politics. Yes. And some of these prophecies do do actually come true, don't they? Well, according to him, they do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we only have his records and um, he does say, you know, th- these seances that you're straining to hear the words of the spirit through the middle-aged woman who's the medium. So the extent to which he, there's a bit of wish fulfilment there, we don't know, but he certainly believes that these prophecies will come true. Mm. And it was really interesting. Uh, you quote some of his self-evaluation of his destiny and his career options um, in a, a publication that he wrote called The Crisis in Victorian Politics. And you say that he did not want commercial employment because it was directly involved with making money, which seemed to him, quote, as to the ancient Greeks, unworthy of a free man and inconsistent with independence. 
and that is a common theme throughout the book is his uh, dedication to independence and to say that uh, he, you know, when people draw him into politics and, um, you know, say you should run or, um, you know, you should be part of this government, he says, well, you know, I need to maintain some level of independence here and I may not always side with you. That's a pretty... Um, I guess it's contextual, it's it's in that political climate, but nowadays that's quite a radical thing, isn't it? Yes, well, the political parties were much looser um, affairs than they are now, so we didn't have the sort of strict party discipline. Essentially, it was the Labor Party that introduced that much stricter party discipline. So in that political context, it makes some sense, but even then, he's probably a bit on the more extreme side. I think... What he, I mean, he's young when he's saying these things too. So it is that sense of, of, I think it's a sense of authenticity. We would probably now use that word more than independence. He felt that he wanted to be true to himself. Um, when he makes those comments about, you know, he doesn't want to grubby his hands with money, that's all very well. But once he marries uh, and has a family, um, he marries a woman who's from a fairly wealthy family and he feels he needs to provide her with a middle-class life, which means a house and a cook and a couple of servants. So although in middle-class terms it's sort of... And the terms of marvellous Melbourne, when there are mansions being built, it's it's modest. He still needs a decent income, so he does have to turn his mind to money. He does, and he then... uh, He's in journalism and he writes... uh, at the age and uh, and that's an interesting part of his life which he continues for a great deal of time and then obviously anonymously as you write uh, he was writing for a a, a paper in the UK in Britain uh, a talking about Australian affairs, politics, uh, and people only realised after his death that he was writing about himself. Yes, this is an extraordinary story, I think, and it's one where I don't fully understand what Deacon thought he was doing. In 1900, he's in London. Um, The uh, Constitution Bill is going through the British Parliament, so he's part of an Australian delegation to make sure, you know, that it goes through as the Australians wanted it. And he gets um, made an offer by the Morning Post, which was a conservative daily, to write a letter from Australia. And it would be anonymous and he'd be called the Australian Correspondent. And he'd get paid £500 a year, which, you know, given that a labourer's salary was income was maybe £200 a year or a bit less, it was a pretty good amount of money. Now, that's fine. He starts that Uh, before the first federal election. He's not in parliament, he's not in government. But he continues it for 13 years through his whole period as prime minister. And it's actually from one of these letters that I took the title of the book because he's negotiating with Joseph Cook about um, the fusion of his Liberal Party with Joseph Cook's Conservative Party. And he writes a letter which says, uh, Mr Deacon pursues his enigmatic course of action... Nobody's entirely, I mean, I can't quite remember the words, but nobody's entirely clear what he's intending to do. But it seems that some decision will, will be made soon. And now I found this extraordinary. Here he is writing about himself anonymously. He also interviews himself. You know, he says, Mr. I asked Mr. Deacon this and that. He adopts a Sydney persona. He pretends to be a supporter of free trade. And it's not actually until the 19, early, the first biography is published in 1923 by Walter Murdoch that it becomes clear because Walter Murdoch's looked at his papers and there are all the drafts of these letters that he's the Australian correspondent. It is quite phenomenal to think about 
you know, an Australian Prime Minister writing anonymously for a foreign... Well, it wasn't foreign at the time. It was the mother country. Um, but, yeah, and in such a detached way almost. And you do say um, and refer to quotes that he himself, um, you know, writings that he's done that he says, I feel and have always felt aloof. Um, so he did... Ha- facilitate or have some sense of emotional detachment at times? I I think that's right. I mean, he wrote that comment about feeling aloof when he's well into his 50s and and was what I I read a lot of that material first and I formed a view of him as, as quite aloof. But when I went back to look to write about the young man in his 20s, he's not an aloof young man at all. He's this eager... Uh, charismatic, handsome man who's into everything, you know. But as he got older, he had that sense of of detachment. But he seemed to enjoy uh, being able to look at himself as an actor. I think he often had the idea of himself as an actor on the stage of politics. He used imagery of the theatre of politics a lot. And so there was... And I think you probably needed that to retain your sanity. I mean, he's he's a politician... Before you know the twenty four seven media cycle, um, and he's a he's a man who needs a bit of quite a lot of time to himself. So he doesn't in the evening. He's not going to unless he goes to political engagements. He's in his study. He's reading, and he's writing. He also, as he gets older, he becomes an insomniac. And a lot of these letters um, to the Morning Post are written in the early hours of the morning after the events of the day. He, it, I think, it gives him a. a a place to reflect, but it also shows he's a very fast writer. You know, he can churn this stuff out after a hard day's work in Parliament. Mm. And you say that he was a voracious reader because um, in one of the years, I think it was 1883, he read 100 books, or at least that's what he listed. <laughs> yes, he made these lists of, of his reading and in um, he kept, from about 83 onwards, he, he, there, there's daily jur- there's week in journals like which have his appointments and at the back they'd be crammed in these long lists of books as if he was cramming the idea of another self, this sort of intellectual, reflective self. And he read, he read theology, he read philosophy, he read the popular novels of the day, he read poetry, he read Shakespeare. Whether he finished them all, but I think he was a very fast reader and I think... He he was a man whose head was always full of words and he liked to keep his head full of words. Mm. He certainly doesn't sound like he had a quiet mind. Um, and interestingly enough, he also didn't really fit the stereotype of what we might understand as an Aussie male uh, in the sense that he was, um, and you've used the word urbane, well-educated, but also that he didn't swear, he rarely drank, he was a vegetarian for some parts of his life. Um, You know, one of the the first bills he put forward was about uh, protecting against animal cruelty. Uh, So he is very much a a different person from the average uh, person in Victorian Parliament. But also, um, and you've emphasised this uh, and his membership of um, the Australian Natives Association. Mm. He was native born, which in that context meant uh, a white Australian that was born in Australia, but from parents that emigrated. Uh, that's And it, that association obviously excluded Indigenous Australians at a time when, you know, it was highly racist and colonial. Mm. Uh, but 
you know, that was also one of his selling points, um, that he was a, a native-born success uh, and that when he went over to to London uh, at these conferences that he was, you know, the young, um, vibrant, intelligent, charismatic political leader of the future and suggested that Australia could really be a success. Yes, because there was a lot of anxiety um, in the later 19th century or and, and earlier in the 19th century that, you know, we, Australia had started off as a convict colony. Would um, British people somehow degenerate in the climate? Would, you know, the, the convict stock, if you like, lead to an inferior breed? So uh, he's, a, he's a child of gold rush immigrants um, who always felt they were pretty much a cut above the convicts. Um, so he, when he goes to London in 1887 to attend the Imperial Conference, he's a representative of Victoria, but he's the youngest of the representatives. He's the only one who's born in Australia. He doesn't have the inherited class deference that all the people born in Britain did. He's not tugging his forelock. Uh, and he actually stands up and has an argument with the British Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, who is astounded by the cheek of this 30-year-old young man to argue with him. He's, you know, an old British aristocrat. Now, back in Australia, the Australian Natives Association, which was like a friendly society, um, but you had to have been born in Australia to be a member of it. So it's young men like him. They're absolutely thrilled. Uh, And then he refuses a knighthood. He's only 30. And he says, no, no, he only wants honours that have come from Australia, not ones that have come from Britain. So he has this sort of proud Australian independence. Um, I start the book by uh, pointing out that he's born two years after Ned Kelly. And when Ned Kelly has become representative of of Australia's sort of anti-authoritarian larrikin masculinity, he's the one who survived in popular memory, partly because of the way that sort of larrikin masculinity moves into the union movement and then into the digger tradition of the Great War. But in the late 19th century... People were much. Deacon was much more of a representative figure than Kelly was, mm. and he was a very resilient person politically because in his early career in Victoria, the colony before Federation, wasn't it? Didn't he have to attempt four times until he was truly elected without question as a member of that parliament? Yes. Well, in the first election where he's just put up, it's a by-election, and um, it was in. Um, West, the, the electorate of West Burke, which sort of ran from Essendon and Flemington up to Mount Macedon and took in Romsey and those sort of areas. Uh, one, of the, one of the polling booths ran out of ballot papers and because of that there was a question mark over his election and the, his opponent said, look, you know, this, this, there's a problem here. And, um, and so when he is first makes his first speech in Parliament he's just introduced and he makes his speech. Uh, it's like his maiden speech. And then at the end of it, he says, and actually I'm going to resign because my, my independence, I can't bear the idea of, of, of there being a sort of stay, a question mark over my election and he resigns. And on the tram on the way home, the Premier of the party, that the Liberal Party that he would have belonged to, Graham Berry, says, well, it's all very well for you. You can make this grandstand, but what about the party? You know, we've just lost a vote. But then there's a, a series of elections and eventually um, buoyed up by the fact that the in the seances, the spirits had told him, you know, that 
he was likely to be back in Parliament within six months. And lo and behold, through a series of political accidents which meant that the government lost and there was another election, he is back in Parliament. And this becomes one of the prophecies that he believes has been fulfilled by events and, and convinces him that his destiny is in politics. I mean, he, he doesn't... Throughout his life, he always wonders whether politics is really for him and he often contemplates resigning. And sometimes he does resign from the ministry, particularly if there's something he's required to do that he doesn't believe, like one of his resignations is over an increase in pay for member of par- members of parliament, for wow. example. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, and he, you also talk about how he wasn't necessarily in politics for personal ambition, probably in the way that we would see a lot of politicians now seeing it as a career for them and that they are looking after their own seat and interests and electability. As you showed us there, when it push comes to shove, he's got willing to resign over issues. Yes. I mean, what, I think what I mean by that is he didn't seem to be interested in power for its own sake. Um, he can imagine other lives. And in the 1890s, he'd been a, he was a minister in the Victorian colonial government in the 1880s. Um, and this is during the time of Marvellous Melbourne. And Marvellous Melbourne comes pretty well crashing down at, at, in the early 1890s because there was a land boom and housing boom that went badly bust. And there was a financial crisis. And Deacon, Deacon was never a politician for the really hard times. You know, I think he believed in progress and, and progress seemed to have deserted the colonies. So he went to the back bench. And I think if it hadn't been for the prospect of federation, he probably would have left politics at that point and done something else with his life. He was a trained lawyer and he could make money um, at, at the bar um, he may have gone back to journalism, who knows. But Federation was on the horizon and he took this up as a cause. It became, I think, in many ways, as it did for many Victorians, because Victoria was the most um, economically depressed uh, of the colonies, the financially, the financial disasters were worse there. They took Federation became something of a redemption project that um, this, would, this would somehow lift the colony up up to become, you know, part of a nation. Indeed. And you say that in Victoria, the young men of the ANA, which is the Australian Natives Association, were the drivers of federation and, uh, and that Deakin was devoted to that cause throughout the 1890s. What was he doing during that decade to make federation happen? He obviously wasn't the only person, no. but how did he work in tandem with others? Um, well, he gave lots and lots and lots and lots of speeches. The... Um, the, the Australian Natives Association was really important because, as I said, it was it started off as a friendly society, which is, is like a, a cooperative insurance system where, you know, you put in money and that then in hard times you'll be able to, if you've, you've got money for health or to pay for your funeral or whatever. But it became a pressure group for federation. Um, and so it had an organisation an organisational base. There was ANA branches in all the country towns and in all the suburbs. So Deacon was one of the, you know, the star speakers He who would go to that. He wrote about it. He was a Victorian representative to the various conventions that were um, drafting the constitution. So in a way he had two roles. At these conventions drafting the constitution, Deacon um, pushed for compromise. 
the the big issue was um, Victor- most of the populations in Victoria and New South Wales. So if you were a majoritarian Democrat, you wanted an upper house that was based somewhere on population, but you've got these other little states and they were or colonies, they were never going to come in unless they got equal representation in the Senate. So Deakin pushed for compromise there. But the second thing he did was he he gave speeches which inspired the men of the ANA to really work hard and campaign for federation. Mm, he did. And uh, I want to move to um, the moment after federation where a parliament or is being set up and, and the, prime, the first prime minister is being selected and then the cabinet and his involvement in that. Because uh, initially... Um, line was going to become prime minister, but it's isn't it Alfred Deakin's support for Edmund Barton or his refusal to serve under Line that changes the dynamics of that? Yes, there's a new governor general, Lord Hopeton, and he has to select the the first prime minister, um, and he's not terribly au fait with what's going on in Australian politics. Now, New South Wales had been very reluctant there was a, a very strong anti-federalist strain in New South Wales politics and Lyon had been part of that as had Reed George Reed now it so happened that William Lyon was the premier of New South Wales and basically hoped and de- de- made the decision that he would select the premier of the mother colony but it had been Edmund Barton who'd actually led the Federation movement in New South Wales and he had expected to be selected. So he and Deacon, there, there was a lot of toing and froing, but Deacon essentially refused to serve in Lyon's cabinet. Now, he, Lyon had been told that he had to put in a cabinet that included the leading Victorians. In a way, Deacon essentially vetoed it and, and hoped and had to withdraw um, the the well, Lyon basically had to say, look, I can't form a cabinet. And so Barton became the first Prime Minister. Mm. I'm speaking with Judith Brett, who is Emeritus Professor in Politics at La Trobe University, and she's the author of a new book called The Enigmatic Mr Deacon. It's out through text publishing. Now, Judith, uh, we have Edmund Barton uh, as the, the first Prime Minister how does Alfred Deakin become Australia's second Prime Minister? Well, um, the High Court gets established and Edmund Barton, who was from Sydney, was pr- the, the Federal Parliament was meeting in Melbourne. So the, all the other people are having to come to Melbourne. Uh, Barton's getting sick of this, he's missing his family, so he takes the opportunity to, to go to the High Court. And but and sorry, uh, Deacon is the second in the government, and so he becomes prime minister that first time. Mm. But so let's talk about some of the issues that Alfred Deacon is known for. And we were talking off air. You say he's kind of a bit of a cipher for certain issues. So he's known as the as his name is attached to these certain policies and and hot topics. But I want to delve more deeply into a couple of them. Uh, first of all, the White Australia policy, yeah. because he's often associated with that. And he gave many speeches in Parliament about the White Australia right. policy. What was his involvement with that policy? And what was he really doing there? Um, look, this is, I, I've found writing this in the book, you know, was quite hard because it requires a fair bit of historical imagination to, for, 
for us to get back there. Now, the White Australia policy, I suggest, was a massively overdetermined policy in that all sorts of Australian, all sorts of political groups supported it for different reasons. The Labor movement supported it um, to essentially to protect jobs from what they saw as as cheap coloured labour. Um, the uh, the Liberals supported it because they believed that for a democracy to work, people had to have shared values. They needed to be literate. They needed to speak the same language. Um, they, you know, that that was their understanding of citizenship. Um, Deacon, there's a very um, interesting prayer that I found where Deacon wrote. He's writing to God about what he wants to do with his life. And he says, you know, I'd like to serve all of humanity. But he says, but that's not really practicable. So I'll serve my race. So I think that the people in in the late 18th century, sorry, 19th century, early 20th century, they thought of the world as divided into races. They thought of that as being, if you like, their moral community and that's where you you served. Deacons, there was also, Deacon was never racist in the sense of physically denigrating um, other people. There's a, when he, in 1890, he went to India to investigate irrigation and he published a book called Irrigated India. And in that, he, because he's a curious person, he records these conversations that he has on trains with, with Indian men about their um, hopes for their future. And he says, you know, I, he understands why they, one man who's a, a, a nationalist, why he doesn't want to be governed by a foreign power. So, there's there's what he sort of privately thinks sort of, you know, it's not to say that he's a critic of white Australia, but he sees that as being a nation for a people and a people are understood as being a racially homogeneous group. Mm. Yes, it's within a broader context around um, also people seeing uh, that particular race as having a, having a national character um, that only that continued really uh, up through to the 30s um, right before World War II and obviously was part of uh, Nazi Germany and that ideology is uh, social Darwinism and, and that connection between the nation and race. Well, I think people always, you know, a nation is, is it, it's a political formation and it was always seen as being based on something that people shared, you know, that, that the culture, that they, whether they shared a history, a religion, an ethnic origin. Um, and the real um, horrors of, of nationalism taken to extremes, which we saw in World War Two, were not part of the sort of Western political imagination in that same way. So um, they also, the, the, the people at, at um, you know, the founding fathers and, and the general public at that time were very aware of the sort of racial violence in the United States in the South and they saw, they, they believed that people of different races couldn't really live together without violence um, and degradation on both sides. I mean, they thought that white people... Uh, found it very it brought that that working with with um, colored people would bring out a, a, a primitive violence in them so they thought why would you if we, we've got a pretty racially homogeneous society why would we go there but that being said I mean Deacon 
really never thinks hard about the Indigenous Australians. They're just not part of what he imagines Australia to be. His parents come in the 1850s. He's um, that in the the sort of frontier violence in Victoria um, that happens in the 30s and 40s is sort of over. It never seems to get into his um, consciousness. The um, settlement at Conderic in Hillsville is there and he's quite sympathetic to the plight of individual Indigenous people, but he never imagines them as part of the nation. Mm. And he does have some involvement with Indigenous policy, particularly in the Victorian yes. Parliament. What were what was that reform or, or change that he made? Because it kind of demonstrated more his pragmatism towards policy and money rather than the race or the racial element. He wasn't as conscious of or concerned about it. Yes, he, he really didn't think... How, this is what's become known as the Notorious Half-Caste Act, where um, if... People who Aboriginal people who were living on a, a reserve um, were had rights to be supported by the state. Uh, that and what they basically said was, we'll only support people who were full blood. They would have said, you know, and what that meant was that a lot of the um, mixed race Indigenous people who were living up at Conderic and on other in other Aboriginal missions and reserves were sort of forced off and had, uh, and so those reserves lost their labour but families were broken up um, and it was in if you like a racially, defi- people were racially defined by the legislation and it was the first point at which that happened. Patrick Wolfe who um, you know, as a terrific historian of this period, wrote about this saying that when you look at the speeches, they're actually just saying, well, this will save the government money. That, that it wasn't, they didn't really think through what impact it would have on Indigenous life. They had not much understanding of the ways in which kinship systems worked and the importance of that for Aboriginal families. Um, it's a sort of massive failure of imagination, but they didn't put much effort into it. Mm. It is, and this is, I guess, why you need an, a historical imagination when looking at this period. And what I think this book does well is that is to really recreate and understand the context with which Alfred Deakin was operating the entire time. Certainly doesn't excuse uh, elements like that, but it it makes us understand that perhaps the motivations or what he was possibly thinking at the time when when these reforms were occurring. Uh, Judith, just finally, um, because we're running out of time, I just wanted to um, close out, I guess, the end of Deacon's life because I know he um, started to lose his memory, which was something obviously that was a great uh, strength of his throughout his life. How did he end up? Well, he gets dementia. Um, this retrospective medical diagnosis is very difficult. First, it, I mean, he gets dementia in his 50s. It could be early onset Alzheimer's. It could have been vascular dementia. He could have suffered a series of strokes. Um, but he gradually loses his short-term memory. He, and he's aware of this for probably about five or six years. And he writes very movingly about about it. It's as if he can hold thoughts better when he's writing than when he's speaking but by the time he dies in 1919 he in from 1916 onwards he really has lost his capacity to talk and but he stay he leaves politics in 1913 and he's only 63 when he dies mm. 
But uh, achieved a great deal in his 20s and 30s and 40s. So, yeah, a very impressive figure uh, of Australian life. I highly recommend uh, that people pick this book up and read it all the way through to the end. It might take longer than one sitting because it's <laughs> definitely uh, longer than your average book, but it's certainly worthwhile and it's necessary, I think, to get a full picture of who Alfred Deakin really was. It's called The Enigmatic Mr Deakin. It's by Judith Brett. And Judith, you're speaking tonight at the Wheeler Centre about Alfred Deakin and his capacity to um, lead and work within minority governments. So uh, that's a free event that people need to book for and hopefully they can attend that tonight. Yes, and I think with some of the lessons for the present. Absolutely. Definitely implicit. Uh, thank you so much, Judith, for joining us and, uh, and all the best for tonight. Thank you for having me. That was Judith Brett, Emeritus Professor in Politics at La Trobe University, and she's the author of a new book, The Enigmatic Mr Deacon. It's out through Text Publishing.